0: This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses of work of character actors. My name is Stephen Poitian.
0: My name is Andrew Carroll.
1: Today we are discussing the Jesus Christ of character actors, the legendary Willem Dafoe, a man whose career is so vast we're breaking it up into two episodes, 80s and 90s first, 90s and 10s second. Andrew,
0: yeah. and we're doing this for our anniversary. So happy anniversary, Stephen. It's been a year of stuttering success. <laughs> exactly. Um, so Willem Defoe was born in 1955 in Appleton, Wisconsin. He began acting in theatre in Wisconsin before moving to New York in 1976. He was a member of the Wooster Group, which is a theatre group uh, in New York from then until the 2000s. His first film was Catherine Bigelow's 1982 biker drama, The Loveless. And in 1985, he appeared as Rick Masters in William Friedkin's amoral thriller To Live and Die in L.A. His first Oscar nod for Best Supporting Actor came with Oliver Stone's 1986 Vietnam War film, Platoon. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor twice more and once for Best Actor. 1988 was a big year for Defoe, with another Vietnam film, Off Limits, Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ and Alan Parker's Mississippi Burning. In 1991, he played the lascivious Bobby Peru in David Lynch's road movie, Wild at Heart. Light Sleeper marked the first of six collaborations between writer-director Paul Schrader and DeFoe. Throughout the 90s, he moved fluidly between blockbusters and smaller pictures like Clear and Present Danger, John Waters' Crybaby and The English Patient. The Boondock Saints capped off an incredible two-decade run and set DeFoe up for even more success in the new millennium. You'll have to find out what that success is in our next episode. <laughs>
1: exactly. You pitched Defoe and I was the one who said it should be two episodes Mm. and I think it just felt right coming off the horror miniseries to just do a deep dive into a legend and check out some classic movies I probably should have seen before like Mississippi Burning or Platoon and um, he's also been in a lot of movies we've covered already on the pod. Yeah. Like he's been The English Patient, Death Note. Yeah. Existence. Yeah. Since you pitched Defoe, what is it do you think that's made him such a household name despite being a versatile uh, chameleonic character actor
0: he just works so much I think it's part, <laughs> part of the reason it's like it's uh, like every time I see him on screen like I was watching um, a little teaser for our two, uh, second part of this episode uh, I was watching The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. like that, that uh, film has a lot of ensemble shots in it and but whenever I saw it, my f- eyes were always drawn to Willem Dafoe. Just it's just it's those cheekbones yeah, and the way like is. his face moves around them. Like his his he has quite a large mouth and like uh, his eyes are really really expressive under that under those eyebrows. And he has great hair too. Does have great hair. Yeah, he does have great hair.
1: Yeah, watching six movies of his in the past week, what struck me was how he doesn't really ever give the same performance twice, even when playing characters that could be similar to each other. Mm. Um, he's also got like this soulful sensitive presence, but also is capable of drawing this like raging wealth of emotion yeah. that makes him great for playing more unhinged characters. And a lot of that, as you said, like is his face, which is unlike anyone else's. He's got these sharp cheekbones, as you said, and lines all around yeah, his visage yeah. and so it's got this low-key gravelly voice and Peter. I, <laughs> he's got these like things which give him a lot of presence and imply like this rich history. Yeah. but can also be contorted to frightening effect. Yeah. And um, I also think he's weirdly sexy. But we can get into that yeah, more.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe one of the most maybe the most handsome man we've covered. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, mm. I, don't, I don't think Song Kang Ho probably has competition yeah, that's there. True. Yeah, I
1: don't think he's a conventionally handsome person. But I think mm. he just moves with such a confidence in himself yeah. that it's sexy. There's like a yeah. danger to him. I don't know what it well, is. Well, you know
0: what they say about conventionally attractive Stephen? It's boring. Exactly. Yeah. Um, no offense to any good-looking people out there. <laughs>
1: I was thinking um, you can start since... Um, he he basically made his name with three movies where he played villainous or kind of darker characters. Yeah. The Loveless, To Live and Die in LA and Streets of Fire. You watched the first two. Uh, give me the rundown.
0: The Loveless was technically his first film, despite the fact that he was in... He's in briefly in... Um, Heaven's Ma- Gate. Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. Yeah, but he was fired, I think, three months into an eight-month shoot. Um, so in The Loveless, he plays Vance who's an outlaw biker stopping off in a small southern town on his way to the Daytona 500 race. Uh, so he's an amoral hellraiser who coasts by on his good looks and by taking advantage of ordinary, decent folks. A bit like Willem Dafoe in real life, except for the second part. Um, he gets his kicks from riding his bike, causing trouble and generally upsetting the natural order of things, which uh, which he does to an extreme degree uh, in this small town when he seduces Tolina, who's played by Marin Cantor, who I don't think had much of a career after this film, uh, and starts a small war between his, his biker gang and the townsfolk led by Talena's father, Tarver. Uh, it's really more of a mood, ple- mood piece than a pro- plot driven film. Like I remember seeing it on movie one afternoon uh, and seeing like just Willem Dafoe's face, cigarette hanging out of his lip, leaning in through a car window and the number 82 minutes. Yeah. in the bottom left hand corner and thinking oh I'll watch this this will be a good afternoon's watch and like I won't lie there was certain parts where I was just like come on do shoot someone yeah, exactly. <laughs> race your bike or something um, but I think for what it is like it's a film full of like even when nothing happens your eyes are always on the screen just because of how many good looking people there are in this movie <laughs> I don't think it's Defoe at it most handsome that's definitely until I live and die in LA and like it was his first leading role and he really like burns up the screen like he smoulders and sizzles and every time he's on screen you're like it's like what um, if you've ever watched a fire burn and you just your eyes are just drawn to it and uh, it seems like all sound drops out and you can only the only thing you hear is the crackle of the fire and the fire itself and it looks like almost this breathing thing that's Willem Dafoe for me
1: that's amazing yeah you know.
0: Um, and yeah he. I think you were right when you introduced him saying he has a lot of com- he just has that confidence instantly um, which is uh, surprising really considering he was fired off his first movie I know <laughs> um, and to have that to be able to project that confidence even if you don't necessarily have it because getting fired off a Michael Cimino western epic is it's not going to do your confidence any good um, regardless of uh, how your career goes, in, goes after that it's a um, good story to tell it is a good after. story yeah yeah yeah, I, Lolas. It was never going to be his breakthrough, uh, because I think it only screened at like the Museum of Modern yeah. Art in New York and maybe a couple of art house theaters there. And on movie, um, like forty years after, not 40, nearly forty yeah. years after it came out, um, but it's clear, like, just from his talent, the way he moves on screen and the way he looks uh, and his expressions and his, his really sharp, good-looking features and his charisma. He, he was a star in the making from the moment, from the first frame that you see him, and uh, like. I think what's compelling about him is that he's not really a good guy. He's like this—he's just this uncaring biker with little regard for anyone outside his circle, and even people within his circle, he's like very dismissive of. And uh, he's just uh, just as well on his own as he is with a biker gang, and even like Talena, who's in the movie, is um, who he has a fling with, is you know just an afterthought to him at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, but the Defoe character I least want to fuck with. Except maybe the lighthouse keeper in the lighthouse, but <laughs> we'll get to that in a few weeks. Um, so he, in To Live and Die in L.A., he plays Rick Masters, who's a professional counterfeiter and forger who kills the partner of Secret Service agent Richard Chance. The two men begin to spiral towards a fiery confrontra- confrontation as Chance's scheme becomes more and more ethically questionable, corrupting his new partner, John Vukovic, in the process. Uh, so, yeah. Rick Masters is a slippery bastard with amazing style, great hair, and a soul as black as bubbling tar. What next time? He's in protective custody. (laughs) Yeah. Protective custody don't mean shit to me. The man's dead.
1: (laughs) And a pig's ass. want my paper, Jeff. I can't afford to have it circulating right now.
0: I told you I don't have it. Get it. Um, it's also Defoe as his most handsome and probably as most realistically evil because he's played like lots of bad guys, um, which is always great to see him as Willem Defriend instead of Willem Defoe in the likes of Platoon or anything after that, um, or John Wick. But in or this, Jesus Christ, <laughs> or Jesus Christ, yeah. Um, but it's, I feel like you really get the good stuff when. Um, you watch him play a bad guy and like not that his performance is any, is in any way overblown like I feel like all his outfits and his facial expressions do enough of the heavy lifting that he never has to shout or scream or he's always like projects this air of calm even if he's never like necessarily calm beneath because he knows that killing um, Chance's partner has like set him on a bad path and uh, other deals that he makes along the way don't go so well like his um his partner or his runner or whoever he is, uh, Carl, oh, well. he gets arrested in the in the airport by chance. And uh, it's clear to masters, at least, that things are spiraling. Whereas to chance, it's like the thrill of the chase, like it becomes less about revenge and more about, you know, getting this guy just to prove that that I'm because in William Peterson's head, at least in the, the character was this guy who has a badge and a gun. And that puts him not only above the law, but above life and death. And uh, that's what makes his li- his life and his job so thrilling for him. Whereas forging and counterfeiting, that's Rick Master's job. And he's obviously been to prison and he obviously doesn't want to go back. And um, it's one of those films that, like, from the open, once you see the poster, you know that it oozes, like, 80s excess, machismo and danger. Because <laughs> it was made in 1985, uh, kind of like when William Friedkin had, like, was in his wasteland years. Burnt his bridges with so bri- Burned every single bridge, collapsed every bridge uh, in a <laughs> rainstorm. Um, <laughs> the tagline is, a federal agent is dead, a killer is loose, and the city of angels is about to explode. The director of the French Connection is back on the street again. And the instant you know, you're like, even with that silhouetted poster of Chance holding the briefcase, which is from maybe part the best part of the movie. Uh, you know that this is this film is kind of the an- the antithesis to like the bulky '80s action heroes with hearts of gold, and it's a film about lean, wiry men with lumps of coal where their hearts should be, and uh, like it's probably the most he, Masters is probably the most frightening villain out of like Friedkin's Uvra, um, you know maybe Killer Joe and P- the possessed Pazuzu. Reagan, the <laughs> Pazuzu, yeah, have uh, uh, are the only competition he has there, but uh, and it's really cool because like. Defoe learned how to print money for the movie and Friedkin hired a real counterfeiter for the money printing scenes that didn't show Defoe's face so that it'd look more real. I don't really know why Defoe learned to print money, but he said it was an interesting experience in an interview. So, yeah, it's good. It's, and like Friedkin is known for doing that kind of stuff. Like uh, he, he hired, a, I forget what his name is. I think he was called The Torch, who's a professional arson, arsonist. You know, the bit in Sorcerer where they blow up the tree that's blocking mm. the road. Yeah, he hired a professional arsonist to come out and blow up the tree
1: he's of that Michael Mann era where it's like yeah, he got, yeah. I'm going to hire
0: a, I'm going to hire cops to play thieves yeah. and I'm going to hire thieves to play cops exactly yeah. he's like
1: look if we're making a movie about this we might as well get the real guy yeah
0: yeah exactly and I think Masters is kind of this avatar of the excess that generated a great deal of cruelty and criminality in the Reagan years in from 1980 to 1988 which kind of bled into law enforcement and turned men like Chance and Vukov- Vukovic into cavalier anything goes agents and uh, I don't know if it's my favourite Freakin' film but I think it always it always just edges Sorcerer out of the top spot whenever I watch it and then whenever I rewatch Sorcerer it edges yeah, To Live and die in LA out of it
1: you've written about all these movies on Headstuff I have yeah mm. Cause I, I feel like Freakin' has like five or six masterpieces mm. so if you want to see what they are
0: yeah check out Andrew's yeah. article
1: yeah will we talk about Platoon sure yeah. I love this place at night The stars. There's no right or wrong in them, they're just there. That's a nice way of putting it. What happened today is just the beginning. We're gonna lose this war. Yeah, Charlie Sheen stars as Chris Taylor, who enlists in the Vietnam War because he wants to help his country, but is quickly confronted with the miserable conditions of U.S. soldiers there and also the pointlessness of the conflict. And while there he sort of has a devil, an angel over his shoulder, the devil being the (laughs) ill-tempered and indestructible Staff Sergeant Robert Barnes, played by a scarred up Tom Beringer and the more pleasant and cooperative and also Muy Fuego, mm. Sergeant Elias played by Willem Dafoe. Uh, Baringer and Dafoe were both cast against type at the time and were both Oscar nominated for their performances and uh, with good
0: reason, mm. I'd say. What, what did you think of Dafoe? I thought he was great. Um, I would have liked to see more of him.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, because okay. you
0: see so much of uh, Barnes and great, amazing. But I think, um, yeah, I, uh, Willem Dafoe's character, Elias, uh, he has it's probably the most iconic death scene maybe in death pose at least in cinema it's It's like Jesus Christ Jesus Christ stretched out on the cross funny enough and um, yeah and I think um, that it arrives too early for me that moment I think if the movie was maybe uh, if you had an extra half an hour in the movie and you gave a bit more of that half an hour to Willem Dafoe and then you know whatever killed, killed him off great I get what you mean because
1: yeah. I, I like Oliver Stone movies but he's a very maximalist Absolutely. bombastic yeah. filmmaker. Yeah. Like this is the guy who wrote Scarface. Yeah. In Natural Born Killers I believe the camera never angles on a straight horizontal level the whole movie no. because he wanted to capture like... Insanity. Exactly. Um, Even something like Talk Radio which based on a play is just so fucking loud. <laughs> you know? And while he's great at eliciting a reaction from viewers I feel like a little of him goes a long way. And I think that a lot of platoon is very big and broad like Charlie Sheen is this naive yeah, young soldier yeah. Tom Banger is this tough of nails psychotic sergeant and there are archetypes we've seen before just played yeah, up to 10 yeah. but I feel like Defoe sort of single handedly gives the movie a subtlety that yeah. I don't think is there on the page like Elias is every bit as proficient in combat as Barnes's character and is unafraid to fight. Yeah. They yeah. talk about him being a Nam for three years. It's actually funny, because John C. McGinley's character says, guys in three years and he thinks he's Jesus fucking Christ or something. <laughs> and, you know, defund to play Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, he's not a pacifist, but he talks about becoming like disillusioned with the war and feeling their efforts aren't making any difference. And he takes a stand against Barnes when he starts torturing and killing Vietnamese villagers for information yeah. and He's also a stoner who likes looking at the yeah, stars. Yeah. And I don't know if you'll agree with me, Andrew, but he has this kind of, I don't know, like, I think he's so sexy in this movie. Like, there's that scene where Sheen comes into the den where they're all mm. smoking weed yeah, and yeah. Sheen takes his first ever hit of Mary Jane. Yeah. And Sergeant Elias yes is like, then the worm has definitely turned for you, man. Feel good. And he's like, yeah, it feels good. I got no pain in my neck now because he'd been shot in the neck. Yeah. He goes, feeling good, good enough. And then he makes him like... Oh, he fe- sl- feeds him his own blowback through through the barrel of a shotgun. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Yeah, um, There's also the part where Defoe is planning this like one-man assault through the jungle when they come under fire and Sheen offers to help him and he just smiles and says, and he's like, I work no, faster alone. I work faster alone, yeah. And yeah. you can
0: see the light in his eyes because you get the sense that Barnes and Elias have found what they're good at in life. Hmm. but um i think uh, elias still has some of that desire to like you know the greatest generation that kind of the people that fought in world war Two or world war one he has a desire to be like them rather than just be like this guy that signed up to do good and ended up massacring uh, yes, civilians exactly. yeah
1: i think he's also got like a pride in what he does yeah but he's barnes is really like i'll do anything it takes mm. to win this war yeah. Whereas yeah. Defoe is like, there's lines, yeah, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, like, he says at one point, Barnes believes in what he's doing and then follows it up with, we're going to lose this war. Exactly, like, yeah. yeah.
1: And like, Platoon is filled with these like, big moments and like, the finale where Sheen is like, mowing down the enemy with machine guns, yeah. screaming like, you fuckers! And then turning to like, a fellow soldier and being like, it's fucking beautiful! Yeah. But what really sticks with me is like, Defoe's little moments, like the ones... I mentioned, or where he smiles when he sees Barnes first in the jungle and then he the kind of the shoe drops yeah, yeah. and his eyes just like drop. Mm. Like that. that's what I take away from the movie, yeah. not the sort of bombastic stuff, which I think kind of comes into it after he dies. Yeah. And I, I just think like he takes all these different character threads and just unifies them into a performance that feels simultaneously like a real person, but mm. also like like a real person with contradictions and like an inner life, yeah. but also like nothing I've ever seen before. Yeah. Um, can I talk a bit about Mississippi burning?
0: Yep. I don't mean shit. I have a gun, unless you're ready to use. I'll kill you right now if you don't listen to what I have to tell you. Fuck you. Let me go. Let me go. We'll
1: go after all of them together. You wouldn't know how.
0: You're going to teach me how. You don't have the guts. Not only do I have the guts, I have the authority. What is that supposed to mean? New no rules. We nail him any way we can, even your way. Is this you talking or some guy pulling your strings, huh? Both.
1: I want to talk a bit about it because I feel like Platoon, Mississippi Burning, and Last Intuition of Christ are all Defoe fighting against his early typecasting. Yeah, absolutely. They also have elements that all feel Christ-like in how their characters want to do good, but they're also like different performances. Yeah. Yeah, so directed by the recently passed away Alan Parker, who made a bunch of incredible movies like Midnight Express, Angel Heart, and The Commitments. Someone I have a lot of time for. It's about these two FBI agents investigating the murder of civil rights workers during the 60s who seek to breach the conspiracy of silence in a small southern town where segregation divides black mm. and white. The younger agent trained in FBI school played by Willem Dafoe runs up against the small town ways of his former sheriff partner, by Jean Hackman. Uh It basically chronicles their investigation against Ku Klux Klan activity up until the point where Dafoe's character Realizes his Boy Scout methods won't work and um, have to color outside the lines to achieve yeah. justice. Yeah. Have you seen this movie? before? I
0: have. Yeah, I saw, saw it back in I think uh, fifth or sixth year when I was seventeen or eighteen. But yeah. I really loved it at the time. I haven't revisited it since, and I think Willem Dafoe kind of fades into the background a bit for me, uh, just in my memory. But because uh, I feel like when you cast Gene Hackman in a movie, you yeah. know, you're, <laughs> it's kind of the best. Yeah, but um, you're, I, light, you're lighting a fire that can't be put out.
1: It's it's this that this movie's that classic Hollywood thing of being so well assembled mm. and so well acted that you're almost able to look past its problematic elements. Yeah. Almost, mm. I'll say. Because like it is quite glaring that it, it's it's a very well intentioned movie for sure mm. about the horrors of racism in America, where all the main characters are white and pretty much all the black characters are very passive. Yeah. And also, like Frances McDormand is in the movie playing the unhappily married wife of one of the racists who gives um, Gene Hackman's character information against she's her. She's married spouse. to
0: Brad Dourif, and she's not happy. I know <laughs> it's
1: crazy. <laughs> Chucky himself, yeah, and is beaten up for doing that, and that is what convinces Heckman and Defoe to resort to like vigilante yeah, tactics. Yeah. Not all the black people being murdered, yeah. <laughs> tortured, yeah. and bombed out the of their houses. burning, you know. Yeah. But it, I think if you can look past those problems, like it's a very gripping thriller that's still timely today and it's Absolutely, incredibly yeah. well acted across yeah. the board. And I think it does capture the danger of being a black person in 60s America, which I think movies like The Help, which is set, in the same time, in the same place, mm. Mrs. and like Green Book, similarly, around the same yeah, time. Yeah, I feel like place. those
0: movies just feel very toothless when, when exactly. compared to Mississippi Burning. Because yeah. at least the, those movies were willing to show the really, really nasty side of uh, racism.
1: But on, like, on Defoe, as you said, it's like a very unshowy performance, and Hackman is playing the more entertaining renegade character. Mm. Defoe is a bit more humorless and serious. Hackman shouts a lot, where Defoe is like, Reserved, yeah. yeah. But what really impressed me about Defoe's performance is that there are two or three scenes where he and Hackman's character are having a row, and Hackman is being very movie star, loud and like charismatic, and Defoe doesn't match his energy. He just goes quieter, but he's able to get his point across clearly. And through that, he either you know wins the argument or defuses the situation. Yeah. And Hackman's character always feels a little bit taken aback when it happens. And after one of them, Hackman's literally like, "Give me a minute." Like, he's like, I didn't expect you to yeah. bring me down. And uh, I think the power dynamic between them is really fascinating. And um, also, Defoe, at the beginning of the movie, feels so rigid in his, and set in his idealism. Mm. Like, if I follow what I learned in FBI school to mm. the letter, justice will prevail. Yeah, uh, yeah we're witnessing all these atrocities. And he has this Jesus moment here where he's like, he sees a black man being thrown out of a car and he cradles him in his arms. And, you know, he's been beaten to death and he yeah. holds him with such care. And so it's like, what's wrong with these people? And we, we buy his dissent into using um, more controversial tactics. And part of what I said about the movie being so well made and acted is that in that you overlook its flaws. Yeah. Is that it doesn't feel like a descent. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, and like he and feels Hack-
0: like an adapt an, an adaptation. Exactly, like you fight fire with fire. Yeah, yeah.
1: And he and Hackman had great chemistry, and it's incredible how invested you are at the end of the movie in their relationship and in their respect for each other, despite there not really being any scenes where that you typically see in movies of this type, where they get a beer or talk yeah, about yeah, missing home yeah, yeah. or something. Yeah. So, I, I liked it a lot. Yeah. Will we talk about Last Temptation of Christ. Father. Will you listen to me? Are you still there? Will you listen to a selfish, unfaithful son? I fought you when you called. I resisted. I thought no more. I didn't
0: want to be your son. Can you forgive me? I didn't fight hard enough. Father.
1: Give me your hand. The artwork for this episode is that scene in Last Temptation of Christ where he turns the water to wine. Yeah, and he's he, like, yeah, it's perfect.
0: <laughs> we should get that commissioned. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, in The Last Temptation of Christ, Willem Dafoe, uh, Willem Dafoe, Willem <laughs> that's his rap name. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in, Charlene, please. <laughs> Keep it in, double it. Um, He plays Jesus of Nazareth, a humble carpenter who, after being told he is the son of God, becomes the uncertain leader of a largely peaceful revolutionary movement and is eventually crucified for inciting unrest against Roman rule. And along the way, he, he, I don't know, performs a few miracles or something. Take it away, Stephen.
1: Yeah. Watching Platoon and Mississippi Burnham, I feel you get an idea of what a Willem Dafoe Jesus Christ performance would look like. Mm. And while there are elements of those characters that carry over, like the soulfulness of Elias and Platoon, um, the unbending kindness of the FBI agent in Mississippi Burning, it's very different to those two. And his take on J.C. is not really what you'd expect.
0: (laughs) 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 Forgive him, father. He knows not what he does.
1: (laughs) It's, It's not really what you'd expect. But it's sort of what you need to be compelling is Jesus yeah, in a movie, yeah. especially in this revisionist version yeah. of Christ's story. Like Defoe's taken the character as someone at war with himself, like someone who wants to be normal but has been placed with this burden to yeah, be humanity's yeah. saviour that he doesn't understand because God's only really communicates to him through these visions full of yeah. symbolism.
0: He works in mysterious ways, as they say. As they say. and
1: like I don't he, know who they are, though. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knows he has to fulfil the mission God wants of him, but he doesn't think he's strong enough and he's scared of dying. Mm. There's none of the assuredness of the characters in platoon, yeah. Mississippi yeah. Burning, and I'm not the most religious person, but I've always thought of Christ as being someone who always knew what was in store for him and this being with supernatural powers is like something greater than man. Yeah, yeah. And I think what Defoe does is add a humanity and like a vulnerableness that I can empathize with and understand. And I think he grounds him. And I love how prickly and unlikable and ungraceful he is throughout the movie out of fear. Something which is really only broken in these moments of divinity where God speaks to him or or shares with him his purpose. Or when he finds wisdom himself and shares with his followers. And I remember as a kid going to many masses with my aunties and grandparents and being bored hearing yeah, stories from here. the New yeah, Testament yeah. but I was so invested in The Last Temptation of Christ and like it's a, a slow moving yeah. movie and it maybe it took like 20 or 30 minutes to really like
0: get, get there, engrossed
1: yeah. but like, it made me cry I thought it was like a beautiful piece of art and it made me understand Jesus a little bit better and I just think it's so crazy that like Scorsese received death threats over it from Catholics
0: (laughs) it's release caused a terrorist attack in France you know that was the funniest thing about last last year when uh, Avengers Infinity War came out and people like all the Marvel fanboys were like, uh, "Oh, you suck, Martin Scorsese, for saying our movies are theme parks or whatever." And it's like the man went up against the full might of the Catholic Church, and you think you can somehow get to him through through online internet threats? Grow up! But I think what I like the most about the Last Temptation of Christ is uh, its religious themes. No, um, <laughs> well, uh, I like how I, I like what you're saying in that it makes Jesus, you know, human and flawed and uncertain. Because a lot of these, a lot of movies about Jesus, like you catch them, you catch them anywhere. Like there's so many, but they all, they're all the same formula. They're all Jesus, the greatest hits. It's like Abba yeah. Gold or whatever. Um, and I think like it's a man who's slowly coming to terms with his fate and his faith, obviously, because the two are intertwined. And I think what the point of the movie really sold me was uh, the resurrection of Lazarus even Jesus is kind of, like, stunned and frightened by what he's done. Like, he's resurrected this guy, and he's terrified by the breath of his power, and he realises that, maybe I shouldn't do this. And uh, what I don't like it is, everyone blends in real well. Like, Harry Dean Stanton, you know, they all use their regular accents. Like, no one is speaking, like, they're from the Middle East, which, good, you know, because they're all white (laughs) in the movie. But um, Harvey Keitel speaks, like, with his really quite thick, gravelly New York accent. I don't know, it just... It takes me out of first century Palestine for some reason. I get
1: that. Maybe I'm not that mad about the performance, but I, I just like what they do with Judas in the movie, and they kind of yeah, absolutely,
0: yeah. yeah. That he was forced
1: to betray Jesus and he didn't want to, yeah. And that yeah. he was the the follower who was the most kind of devout to yeah, him from the start because it's usually Peter and really turns like he was a killer at the beginning of the movie yeah, yeah. and becomes yeah. like because it's involved, usually Peter you
0: know? and Peter is like a one note nothing character in this film, yeah, essentially.
1: Um, will we talk about Light Sleeper which is directed by the writer of Last Temptation of Christ
0: Posh Raider yeah maybe this it's not I should get out oh no no don't be crazy it's pouring I'm not supposed to be around former drug associates it's four years I'm clean there's no drugs there's no alcohol nothing I heard I'm happy for you it's still not easy I know Mary, you don't have to avoid me I'm straight Yeah. Two years now. Just came that time. I tried to tell you, I wrote, I called.
1: What I think is really funny about Paul Schrader's movies is it's crazy how certain people just make the same movie over and over again. Exactly. Like the men in unusual professions who due to both internal and external pressures are driven to a breaking point. And it's taxi driver all the way to first reformed with light sleeper, affliction. Uh, American Gigolo, yeah. all these films in the in between.
0: Um, do you want to break down Lightsaber's plot? Sure. Willem Dafoe plays John Latour, a drug dealer experiencing a crisis of identity after his boss, who's played by Susan Sarandon, uh, reveals she's going into the cosmetics business, leaving him jobless. And along the way, he meets an old flame whose mother is dying, and who used to be an addict of uh, whatever. What? She sells cocaine, so she used to be a cocaine addict, and uh, so did he as well. Yeah, but is, as like you said, it is the Schrader experience of a troubled protagonist. Who occasionally writes writes his thoughts down in a diary, documenting his spiraling personal and professional life. It's uh not is uh, not the best of these kind of Paul Schrader movies.
1: Certainly good though, and very, one yeah, of the, very good. One yeah. of these movies yeah. where. It's a bit like Last of, of Christ as well, where yeah. it, it takes you like 30 or 40 minutes maybe to kind of get into the rhythms of yeah. it. But the payoff is hugely rewarding. Yeah, and yeah. it's all these little details coming together. And as you watch this man's like life implode. Yeah.
0: I think it I, is maybe the funniest of, them, of the ones I've seen. Probably. I yeah. mean,
1: I love its kind of milieu. Yeah. This yeah. sort of New York, upscale, yeah. slightly seedy community. Uh, I saw a quote from Defoe where he said, I'm always very fond of laconic cut off characters that have a rich inner life. And I feel like his character is in both Light Sleeper and Affliction. I like that. Well, yeah. Affliction is another Paul Schrader movie, which I watched, Jang paul Defoe. Um, I like that, which is probably why he likes Schrader so much. Yeah. Like, he allows him to play in that sandbox. And I think Latour, Defoe's character, is so fascinating in that he's this person who is drifting through a way of life he cannot sustain. Yeah. He's kicked his addiction to drugs, uh, but still deals drugs. You know, the only people he sees are the other dealers. Yeah who, like, he probably knew when he was an addict or his upscale clients. And yeah. Even his future in that job seems uncertain because of the Susan Surrounding ones that yeah. start the cosmetics business. Like, the woman he loves, like, can't stand being around him because she's a recovering drug addict yeah. and doesn't want to date a dealer. And it's a character that Defoe's face with its lines and the crevices feels made for. Yeah. Like, in, uh, like, implying a history we don't see. It's a performance that's full of Little details I feel really lived in and add up to this great character study. Like he's mostly working nights and he always looks tired. Yeah. He's quiet because he doesn't want to raise too much attention to himself. He never says it out loud, but he's lonely and has this melancholic yeah. energy, like he's just smiling through the pain. There's that scene where he goes into the high end restaurant and sells to two young women and I don't think you hear the dialogue fully. Mm. But he tries to engage them in conversation and he hangs around just a little bit too long. And you you sort of get the impression he was hoping they'd ask him out for the night. Yeah, yeah. And even the way he does the transaction, like he looks at the woman's face as he slips her the drugs under, onto, on the table, like under his hand. And like he doesn't even need to look at what he's doing. Like he's done this a thousand times. That's so graceful. We never see the little baggie with the dust. Again, like in Mississippi Burning, like when he starts to unravel here due to his ex wife relapsing or pressure from the cops or uncertainty over his future and he becomes more unhinged shows up at a psychic's house I was like has my luck run out (laughs) Um, you buy it because he's amazing at knowing exactly how he plays on screen and how much of his raging emotion uh, to draw upon in each individual moment I think
0: I want to go back to how funny it is for a second because yeah. there's a bit um, where Susan Sarandon is on the floor of her apartment counting money. She with this. is so
1: hot in this movie. Yeah, can we say? Yeah. yeah, we can.
0: Yeah, where she's on the floor of her apartment, uh, counting her money with this Hasidic Jewish guy, <laughs> and uh, she's trying to get him to stay, and he's like, "No, no, I really need to go. I really need to go. Come on, stay for dinner. We'll talk about Zionism." And she just, he's like, "No," <laughs> and she. Or,
1: She's like, this counting machine's
0: great. <laughs> like, she's <laughs> never seen one of them yeah. before. Or the bit where um, Willem Dafoe and his uh, ex-girlfriend or wife or whatever are kissing in the middle of a hospital corridor. It's just <laughs> these two really guys funny. trying to move move a dead body past them. Like, excuse me. Excuse me. Like, oh, sorry. Yeah, That bit's great. And the, st- the stakes uh, never feel as high in this movie as they do in, say, like Taxi Driver or because uh, he's never really rescuing anyone in this movie. He's just after money, I think. At the end, and he, it,
1: he's, I think he's also scared that the, the character played by Victor Garber wants him dead. Yeah, yeah. Well. yeah, maybe he overreacts a little bit. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <But>. <laughs> yeah, and it's essentially Taxi Driver for like the ugly hangover that was the nineteen nineties, because mm. you know people had done so much cocaine in the eighties that they had basically put themselves into a recession.
1: <laughs> yeah, I also like how uplifting Light Sleeper is. Like, yeah. unambiguously. Yeah, yeah. Like,
0: yeah, because at the yeah because at the end of Taxi Driver, you have that uncertainty, and you have the uncertainty at the end of First Reformed as well. Um, but with Light Sleeper, it's uh, very much grounded in the real world. Maybe
1: this is what'll shake him out of his rut, even though yeah, it seems yeah. bad. You know. Yeah, I mean? yeah. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Porik, and we host the Behavioural Vaccine Podcast. We're behavioural scientists who met through improv comedy. And so each week, we bring the two things together to explore how behavioural science can be applied, but in a fun way.
0: There's a little bit of research.
1: There's a good bit of messing.
0: And there's loads of practical tips on everything from how to save money to how to maintain your friendships.
1: Think about this like a behavioural vaccine to get you through winter 2020. Go on, sure, give us a listen. And now... Back to the show. Um, can I talk a little bit about Affliction? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. Uh, Affliction is, I think, equally good to a light sleeper, uh, maybe even a bit better. It stars Nick Nolte as a cop in the small, snowy town investigating a hunting accident uh, while also living in the shadow of his abusive, hypermasculine father, played by James Coburn, who won an Oscar for his performance. Defoe plays Notte's younger brother, who narrates the film. It's not a major role. Like, he maybe has three big scenes. His character lives outside the town as a teacher, um, only returning for his mother's funeral. But his entrance into the film pivots it away from this mystery we've seen before into a story about the lingering trauma of abuse. Yeah. Um, I'd say all the
0: genre heads were like, oh, for fuck's sake, Paul. <laughs>
1: <laughs> His performance is noticeably like very different to Nolte and Coburn's and a little weird at first. Like, he's not gruff and big like mm-hmm. them. He's quiet and sensitive. But he, he has this amazing scene... Uh, where he and his brother are talking about their upbringing and he says that after hearing about his dad hitting Nalte with a bottle as a kid, he became careful around his father and he said, I was a careful child. I became a careful adult. But at least I was never afflicted by that man's violence. And it's such a beautiful sad scene because... Affliction. Exactly. And it's uh, such a beautiful and sad scene because you feel Nalte and Defoe's love for one another, but it explains why Defoe is so different. And it, it's also tragic because Nalte doesn't realize just how afflicted he he has been by his father's abuse. so He sort of laughs it off in that moment, mm. but the rest of the movie is just watching him implode. Yeah. So I just think Defoe sort of changes the whole temperature of the movie in a great yeah. way. Yeah. Another frequent collaborator of Defoe's is Abel Ferrara,
0: friend of the pod. Yeah, friend of the pod, Abel Ferreira Stephen, <laughs> how you doing? Great to see you again.
1: <laughs> uh, their first collaboration was a 1998 cyberpunk erotic drama New Rose Hotel, a movie that got terrible reviews upon release, but I love and I think is ripe for rediscovery. Uh, adapted from William Gibson's short story, set in a future where wars are waged over information and there's no difference between governments and corporations. What is it? The year 2020? Am I right? <laughs> Uh, basically Fox played by Christopher Walken and X played by Dafoe, boasting a soul patch tried to lure this legendary Japanese scientist away from one corporation to another for a big payday Fox believes from watching footage captured of the scientist that he is unhappily married and bored in his routine and that he could be lured away with the help of a woman enter Sandy played by Asi Argento an Italian prostitute living in Japan they hire her to make the scientist fall in love with her ex's task with training Sandy, but the two enter an intense sexual relationship that runs the risk of jeopardizing the plan. Uh, I understand why this movie got bad reviews. Um, it's not the most conventionally beautiful movie. It looks like it was made with a very low budget. The story and what it choose to show you on screen and whatnot is a little confusing. However, I think you could only hate this movie if you have a limited idea of what movies could be. Yeah. Okay, Because it's a film made in 1998 and is about topics that are so pressing today like privacy, surveillance, technology and a general distrust of all those things. And even the style of the movie reflects life now. There's this great Guardian article which is the only piece of writing about the movie that I think gives it a fair shake that says that as the viewer we experience so much of the plot through these fragmented, grainy video footage and monitors. Um, something ahead of its time in its anticipation of our own digital anxieties and the way screens generate um, huge chunks of our day-to-day reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also a really interesting joining of two minds because there's William Gibson, creator of cyberpunk and author of Neuromancer, known for writing these like futuristic stories that feel as if there is no barrier to their imagination. Mm. But like his writing, I think, is a little bit cold because it's watching these archetypes and ciphers be bounced around wild environments and situations. And I think what Ferrar does is give his story a tactile quality, like a warmth. like It's very intoxicating characters talk like they're in a william gibson novel but the movie's kind of shadowy oh that's cool lo-fi grainy kind of film gives it like both a gritty and a noir quality mm. and i wish filmmakers would try to make sci-fi movies like this at a lower budget because it's it's fascinating to see how ferrara overcomes the budgetary constraints yeah. of the movie and also the elements he chooses to empath- emphasize, which probably drew him to the material yeah you know, and um, because he, he grounds the story, because while there is this futuristic lingo that may not be fully explained, we get that these characters are hustling. You know, like that they have desires that we can relate to, that whether they be financial yeah. or sexual. And uh, Defoe is like reliably great. Like, he's this conflicted character. He he wants the mission to succeed, but later is angry when it does because it separates him and Sandy. And what well, that could be annoying because he says some really shitty things to Sandy. Like he manages to say sympathetic because. He and Argento have so much sexual chemistry, and it's him dialing up that platoon, hot confidence and intensity and sensuality all the way up to eleven. When they fight, it feels like a real lover's spat, and we get it because he's lovesick, and he he says himself he's confused. And um, without spoiling, like how emotionally invested you are in the final act depends on how much in, how invested you are in DeFoe's struggle specifically, because it's essentially him holed up in the Titcher Hotel, suicidal replaying scenes from the film we've already seen, like, in his mind, now privy to information he and we didn't know before. Yeah. And I can imagine that last act being the part where people who wanted a more conventional film just, like, fully flee the theatre. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Um, because it's repetitious, for sure. Mm. But by that point, I was so invested in Defoe and his relationship was that I, I found it really compelling adding, and it kind of adds a more personal layer to the film's thesis, yeah. which I think kind of boils down to who can you actually trust? Yeah. um, I liked it a lot. Oh, I just wanted to shout out his wild performance in Wild at Heart because it's a movie where he out Nicolas Cage mm. playing a disgusting looking gangster yeah. <laughs> with greasy slick back hair a pencil moustache and rotting teeth uh, he's just someone ugly on the inside and out uh, who you can't wait to get there just as and they do in maybe the funniest death ever in a movie where he is kind of gunned down by cops and then as he's falling falls on his own shotgun and shoots his <laughs> head <laughs> It's amazing. Um, is there any movies that you from his naughties and from his 10s that you're particularly excited to revisit?
0: As the uh, he is a one, one of only two good parts to 2002 Spider-Man. The other being J.K. Simmons. So
1: I was. And the other being Sam Raimi. Yeah. So I was excited. The whole movie. Yeah,
0: I was excited to revisit that. And uh, when he's on screen, great, electric, fiery. When Tobey Maguire is on screen, just put me to sleep now.
1: I am excited to revisit Inside Man, Ooh, the Spike Lee yeah. movie. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Email I know that at gmail if you have a suggestion of who you'd like us to cover, or you are somebody who works in podcasts, film, media who'd like to be on the show. Follow us the Twitter at I know that Face P One follows on Instagram at I know that Face. Thanks to Charlene Fernandez for editing and running the Insta. Andrew, where can people find more of your work?
0: Well, if you want to tell me how good my Abel Ferrer impression is, uh, you can find me at Andrew underscore Carol 0 at twitter.com. If you want to read about what we play, how we play it, and why we play it, visit the Headstuff gaming section. Follow me at
1: Stephen Portsey on Twitter. Check out the Headstuff film page. See you later, files Bye-bye.
0: This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.